Genesis chapter 6, commencing at verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of all his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle and upper decks. I am going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Russell Crowe uh, starred as Noah. If you've seen the film, 2014 film, directed by Darren Aronofsky, uh, Russell Crowe starred as Noah. And he said uh, in an interview about the film that he hoped it would provoke discussion. He hoped people would leave the cinema. Quote, he said, you come out of this movie and you want to talk about our stewardship of the earth, about our relationship to the animals. What is spirituality? Who am I in this world? All these are fantastic subjects for conversation. I think he's right. And the story of Noah, I hope we're going to see over the next uh, three weeks, does indeed address these 
profound questions and many others as well. It addresses a huge range of universal themes, Uh, the ones that Crow mentions, uh, but also uh, questions such as the relationship between justice and mercy. Interestingly, Darren Aronofsky, the director of uh, last year's film on Noah, said that for him that was the key theme of the narrative of Noah, this interplay between justice and mercy. But not just justice and mercy. We see the great themes of sin and salvation. We see the great themes of dominion and stewardship and what is to be our relationship with the created order, with the environment. More on that in a couple of weeks' time. We get a sense of uh, what is the nature of God. We get a sense of what is the nature of man. What are we like fundamentally? Uh, We get a sense of uh, the nature of faith the nature of hope. It's a story that is cosmic in its scope, addresses some of the profoundest questions that we can address as human beings. But it's also, I think, one of the reasons why there's a story that so captures us is because it's not only cosmic in scope, but it's also deeply personal in nature. It's a deeply personal story because it's a story about a man, a man of uh, faith, It's a story of his walk with and his response to God. A God who is faithful to him, who is personally involved with him. A God who, as we'll see next week, personally shuts the ark door as the rain starts to fall. It is, therefore, a story that still speaks to us personally today. Speaks to us Uh, if we're following the Lord Jesus, as people of that same faith in that same God. And finally, I want to suggest it's a story that points forward. It's a story that points to a bigger story. It's a story that points beyond us. The story of Noah is, at its heart, the story of how God, acting through one righteous man, rescues the family that belongs to that righteous man through judgment and the waters of death, and how he recreates the world and how he begins to restore his kingdom. And I wonder if that rings any bells. The story of Noah points forward to the story of Jesus. It's a story that, in many ways, as you read through chapters 6 to 9, you find, in fact, that it summarizes the entire Bible, and it shines multiple spotlights on the person and the work of Jesus and what it means to be saved as a member of his family through the storms of life, through the storms of death and judgment. Now, friends, you've been given a notice sheet. If you open up your notice sheet, you'll find, I hope, a little uh, handout uh, where I've tried to sketch Uh, out the story, uh, the shape of the story, the flow of the story. I've done that because uh, we're not going to have time to go through these four chapters verse by verse, as it were. Uh, We just don't have time. So what I've done is I've provided a diagram that summarizes the flow, the shape, and the key points of the narrative to help you as you go home and you read the story. And I hope over the next few weeks you will read the story of Noah several times. And I hope this little diagram is a help. It's on the screen if you haven't got it in front of you. You'll notice that the story starts with human rebellion, And uh, God's grief over the state of his creation. And God responds in judgment. 
And that judgment is outlined in the flood in chapter 7. And you see as you read chapter 7 that what you've got there is essentially a decreation, an undoing of all that was done in Genesis 1. But you have also God's justice. And alongside that, you have his mercy as he calls this righteous man Noah and through him saves him and his family. And the whole story turns in verse 1 of chapter 8 with these extraordinary words, and they will be our text next week. God remembered Noah. We're covering a lot of ground this week, but next week, three words. God remembered Noah. And then you get God starting to recreate as the waters are driven back and the earth appears again and Noah is released in 8.15 and the story ends, shockingly, with human rebellion, unchanged in chapter 8, but God's recommitment and his covenant to his creation in chapter 9. That's the shape of the story and I hope that's of some help to you as you go away and read it uh, over the next three weeks. But this evening, I've called our time together. Actually, we're going to split our time together into two. And we're going to look at the first two-thirds of the sermon. Then we're going to pause and reflect on it, sing and pray, and then do the last part of the sermon. But I've called this sermon, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And it's a story, I think you noticed, I hope as Pat read it, that begins with the bad and the ugly. So the bad, verse 5, have a look. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were evil all the time. The poet T.S. Eliot said that humankind cannot bear too much reality. However, we will never understand the story of our own lives. We will never understand the story of our own experiences. We'll never understand the futility of religion and the naivety of humanism. We'll never understand who Jesus is, and we'll never understand what it is that he does for us. We'll never understand the wonder of his grace, and we'll never understand and experience the full work of his Holy Spirit in us and through us if our understanding of human sinfulness is shallow. If we play the game of let's pretend, we must be those who allow the Bible to confront us with ourselves. We must allow it to give us a dose of realism as part of its bigger prescription of health. If we're to grasp the song of salvation that the Bible sings, we must first allow God to reveal the reality of our situation, and that's what he does in verse 5. Now, friends, hear me this evening. Verse 5 is not saying that we are totally evil. That is not the point verse 5 is making, not the point the rest of the Bible makes. We're made in the image of God. We saw that in the opening chapters of Genesis. We'll see it again in chapter 9. And although that image is marred by sin, it remains. And we'll come back to that in a couple of weeks. We're not totally evil. But the point verse 5 wants to make, the point that Jesus made many, many times, is that what is wrong with humanity is more than skin deep. Um, Sin, you know, it's often sneered at as a superficial thing. You know, it's sort of dismissed as naughty acts or foolish words. It's often tied to sex, which prudish Christians are scandalized by and want to ban. 
But that is, a, that is a convenient caricature. That is a parody of what the Bible means by sin. And it allows so many of us to ignore what the Bible actually wants to say about us and what actually we know is so uncomfortably true of us. And that is this, that there is something dark and disordered in the very deep depths of our being. At the level of the heart, at the core, whatever you want to call it, at the very core, there is something wrong, something disordered. Sin is more than an action. That's what, that's what comes out of sin. Sin is an attitude. It's an orientation of being. To use the language of verse 5, it's an inclination that causes us always to veer, to veer away from God to self. It's like the Tesco trolley, isn't it? The Tesco trolley that you always end up getting, the one with the dodgy wheel, no matter how straight you think you're pushing it, it always veers. Always has that inbuilt bias just to, to veer. That, that's sin. This inclination, this inbuilt bias to veer from God to self. And it breaks our relationship with God, with others, and with ourselves, in fact. I don't know about you, but no one ever taught me how to lie. No one ever taught me that. No one ever taught me how to lash out when I feel threatened or when I feel that I've been slighted or not given the respect or the due that I deserve. Never had to be taught how to tell a joke at someone else's expense if I thought it would make me look good. Never had to be taught how to doubt God's goodness or to doubt his will for me where it contradicts my own. No, friends, all of that comes far too naturally. You know, I've never seen a parent teach a child to snatch but I've seen many patiently try and teach a child to share. We're broken people. The trouble is our world thinks that it has it within itself to put itself right. You know, if we could just help each other to behave better, if we could just feel better about ourselves, if we could just think better and have a better education system, you know, we could build a personal utopia. We could build a utopia for, for, for our community. And God, if he's, if he's sought at all, is sought just to sort of give us moral guidelines or a good example or perhaps uh, he's sought to come alongside us to give us a pep talk, to sort of feng shui our lives. And that, I think, is why he is so distant to so many. So distant to so many of us. Because God does not come to us that way. He comes to us as saviour, or he doesn't come at all. Do you remember the words of the angel to Joseph? He says, you shall call this son who is uh, going to be born of Mary, you shall call him Jesus. You shall call him Jesus. That's going to be his name. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. How does God come to us? What name does he come to us with? He comes to us as Jesus, meaning Savior. That's how he comes. God didn't send a doctor as if that was our biggest problem. He didn't send an economist as if a broken economy was our biggest problem. He didn't send a behavioral manager as if our behavior was the biggest problem. He didn't send a therapist as if low self-esteem was our biggest problem. He didn't send a politician as if political instability was our biggest problem. Because they're not. They're problems, but they're not our biggest problem. He comes to us as Jesus. Because alienation from God is our deepest problem. 
been reading a book recently called Unapologetic by a man called Francis Spufford, who's a, an author, quite a famous writer and author, and who's also a Christian. And um, it's an extraordinary book, and I don't agree with all of it. But when he writes about sin, he, he's extraordinarily insightful. And he says this at one point, and I thought it was helpful. He says this, you know, the fact that we're sinful. He says it's not the whole truth about us, and he's right. It's only a truth about us, but the way back to the rediscovery of all that is true must begin with this admission. It's not the whole truth, it's a truth. But the way back to all truth must begin with this admission that we need a saviour. Uh, for those of us uh, who are gathered this evening, who are, as we would say, we're not yet following the Lord Jesus, just thinking about Christianity, just investigating uh, what Christians believe. I wonder if God feels distant or absent to you. I wonder if he has felt distant and absent to you. I think it is worth, if that is the case, thinking, am I looking in the wrong places for him? Am I looking for someone simply to draw alongside me and be my guru, uh, to be my sort of guide in life, or to be my teacher, to give me some nice rules to follow and make me a more moral person, or to be my therapist? You'll never find him that way, because he stands at the door as saviour. That's what he would be for you, and you must accept him as such to find him. For those of us here this evening who are following the Lord Jesus, for those of us who are Christians, we've met him as saviour and we rejoice that he has taken the penalty for our sin and he has broken its power and by his Holy Spirit he's at work in our hearts now and he is working on them and he is renewing them and he is changing them, thank God. But of course the truth is, is it not, that sin is still present. It's still, it's still present in every part of us. In other words, we still need Jesus to be Jesus for us, do you see? We still need him and his ongoing work of salvation in us. The great reformer Luther once said this, God wills the whole of a believer's life to be one of repentance. Now he's not being gloomy, he's not saying, oh, you'll never make any progress in the Christian life, it's always about repentance. He's saying, no, repentance, that is coming to Jesus as Jesus, is the way we make progress in the Christian life. It's the way we go on in the Christian life. Why is that? Well, it's because when we admit our brokenness and our fault and we come to Jesus in repentance, we are opening ourselves up to receive Jesus as Jesus. It's the way we tap into the joy of knowing his forgiveness for whatever it is we've done and to experience his healing grace in that. But we won't know that joy, we won't experience that healing grace if we play the game of let's pretend. So for us this evening, we need to ask ourselves the question, when God feels distant, when our Christian life has stalled, we have to ask ourselves the question, don't we? Am I beginning to look at God just as a guru and a guide and a teacher and a therapist? Have I stopped looking to him as... Jesus, the one who saved me and the one who wants to go on saving me as I open myself up to him and admit those areas in which I still veer away. The bad. And the bad gives rise to the ugly. Verse 11, have a look. <clears throat> now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. 
and was full of violence. The word violence is the Hebrew word uh, Hamas, and it has, um, it has a sense of uh, the strong, or, or one of the senses it has is of the strong abusing the weak. And that's exactly what we've seen in Genesis, isn't it? It's what we'd expect. You see, if you turn your back on God, you lose the fatherhood of God. That's what's happened in Genesis 1 to 3. Now, if you lose the fatherhood of God, what happens to the brotherhood of man? It goes. You lose the fatherhood of God, you lose the brotherhood of man. And so it's no surprise what happens in chapter 4 of Genesis. After the sin and after they're expelled from the garden, what happens? Cain says, as he looks at his brother, am I my brother's keeper? As he's about to kill him. Now in God's kingdom, when you've got the fatherhood of God and therefore the brotherhood of man, the answer is yes. We are under the fatherhood of God, all brothers and sisters. But when you turn your back on God and you lose the fatherhood of God, you lose the brotherhood of man. All is corrupted in man's kingdom. Cain, for instance, does not love and learn from his brother. He slays him in a fit of jealousy. Welcome to the dog-eat-dog, survival of the fittest world that we see played out in the endless cycle of our nightly news. And we see played out in our own hearts too, do we not? And God's response is a striking one. Do you see it there? It appears several times. Grief. Grief as he looks at this corrupt and violent world. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 3 to describe the pain of um, Eve in childbirth and the anguish that... um, Adam feels that he's toiling the cursed soil. Same word, grief. That is to say, it, it describes the pain. God feels the pain of a cursed world. You see, where once, Genesis 1 and 2, God looked and all was good. Now he looks and all is bad and his delight has turned to despair and it grieves him. It pains him. In a sense, I think that's a wonderful truth, isn't it? Because it reminds us that our God is not indifferent. He's not unmoved by the violence on the earth. He recoils in despair as the strong abuse the weak. You know, many of the ancient gods, you read some of the other ancient accounts of the floods, all the gods are interested in is their own worship. And they get annoyed when they're not worshipped by humanity in the way they want to be worshipped by. And they're capricious It's very striking here that what brings God grief is the violence of man towards one another. In other words, God is is as concerned by the social interaction of humans. He's as concerned for human flourishing. He cares about the way humans treat each other. It grieves him. What is God's response? It's there in verses 12 and 13. Friends, have a look at verses 12 and 13. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy, in the Hebrew, same word, corrupt, both them and the earth. Do you see how it hangs together? Corrupt humanity has corrupted the earth, and so God is going to bring that corruption to completion. In other words, God's response is not an arbitrary one. The flood is not just some sort of, oh, they're really annoying me. What can I do? I know. I'll send a flood and wipe them all out. It's not arbitrary like that. The punishment fits the crime. Corrupt humanity have corrupted the earth, and God is going to respond by bringing that corruption to completion. 
It's always the case with God that the punishment fits the crime. God's judgment is always in keeping with our sin. It always cuts with the grain of our rebellion. God always hands us over to reap the whirlwind of our own rebellion. Do we not see that around us in our society, in our own lives? That when we build ourselves and our identity on anything other than Christ, that very thing is always the thing that eats us up. Always the thing that ends up destroying us, that becomes unhealthy for us. In a sense, God's judgment works through the very thing we were rebelling against him with. And so human corruption and violence destroys God's good, ordered kingdom. And so he declares he will judge the world by sending a flood that does what? That undoes the good order of Genesis 1. The flood is an act of decreation. The waters that were parted in Genesis 1 to bring forth land and life, now they sweep back, covering land and life. It is an act of decreation. One commentator puts it like this. The world in which order first arose out of primeval watery chaos is now reduced to the watery chaos out of which it arose. Chaos come again. As it was then, so it will one day be again. The New Testament picks this up and uses the flood as a picture of God's final judgment on all humanity as those who are culpably corrupt. Do you remember these words? Of Jesus. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It'll be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. And that is because God is just as concerned about the state of humanity as he was then. God judged culpable humanity then, and one day, says Jesus, he will do so again. And so at this point, it's a story that could leave us in despair if the flood was the final word. But it isn't. It is not the whole story, but it is foundational to the rest of the story. Because we will never discover the hope that God holds out until we first come to terms with our hopelessness outside of him. Friends, we're going to pause at this point, and we're going to just talk to a neighbor. We're just going to have a, a couple of minutes just to, just to think about that, just perhaps read some of those words again, verse 5, verse uh, 11 to 13. Just think about that. And then I've given a couple of questions. The first is a, a quote from a, a man called uh, Ari Handel, who was the screenwriter of the film, 2014 film, uh, Noah. And he said one of the things that struck him most when he was reading, he's not a Christian, one of the things that struck him most when he was reading the Noah narrative was this sense in which we are all broken people. He said this, you know, we can't fall into the trap of thinking that those ones are wicked and we're good. That's an easy way out. It'd be good just to think about that and to think, yeah, do we see that played out in the way people and situations are reported, paraded in the nightly news in our own society? Do we see that temptation in our own lives to think like that? And then the second question, perhaps a slightly more personal question, have we ever thought when we've done something we know is wrong, oh, it wasn't that bad, it was only a small thing, what about what others do? Look at all the good things I've done, everyone else does it. How might instead admission and repentance lead to joy and change?
Why not have a minute just to think about that, to read those verses again, to dwell on that, and then turn to a neighbor and bat those around for a few minutes before we, uh, I think, before Pete comes and leads us in song. The good news of Christianity is that the flood is not the end of the story. Running through the story of Noah is this great theme, this great strand of hope. It emerges in the story of one man and his family chosen by God and saved by him because human evil never never has the final word in God's world. Human evil never has the final word in God's world. The evil heart of humanity may break God's heart, but it cannot and it does not break God's promises, does not thwart his plans or frustrate his purposes, and therein lies all our hope. Do you remember these words from chapter 3? God says this, I will put enmity between you Satan and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, God promises in Genesis chapter 3 that one day evil will be crushed and God's kingdom will be restored and he'll do it through the seed of a woman. He'll do it through a man. Sin will not triumph in the end. And against the backdrop of human rebellion, against the backdrop of a world forsaking God, we're introduced to a righteous man. We're introduced to a man of faith. We've had the bad, we've had the ugly, now the good. Verse 8 and 9, friends, have a look. But, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, Open brackets, that is to say, close brackets, he walked faithfully with God. Noah found favor, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God is committed to saving a faithful people. That is the point. God is committed to saving a faithful people. God's grace sought Noah and fell on him, and he responded with faith. He walked as a man of faith in a faithless world, righteous and blameless. He didn't walk in the ways of the culture around him. Rather, he walked with God. That idea of personal relationship, that idea of intimacy that we looked at last week. God graciously calls Noah to build an ark by which he and his family will be saved from the coming flood of judgment. And Noah, did you notice, responds to this call with obedience. That's the nature of obedience. It's never the means by which we earn God's favor, but it is the way in which we express having received it. 
And here we begin to see the way of salvation, faith in response to God's grace, a faith that leads to obedience to God's word and ways. It's a little bit of a motif, in fact, that flows through the narrative. Noah did all that God commanded him. It occurs three times. Even when God's commands looked ridiculous, a boat in the desert, uh, how, how ridiculous, Jason Lane put it so well a few weeks ago when he was preaching, how ridiculous to build a boat in a desert that sees no rain, let alone a river, let alone a flood, a boat, such hard work. Putting, laboring to build a boat in a desert, what possible purpose could it serve? How ridiculous God's command must have looked. But Noah was a man of faith. He knew his God. He had a relationship with him. God commands, and his faith responds in obedience. He does all that God commanded him. That is faith in action. Why does he do what he does? It seems to me it is because he regards God's commands as promises of life. He regards them as promises of life. He knows they are the way. Ridiculous they may look to his culture, may even be ridiculous to him living in a desert, but he trusts that God has commanded this for his good, that in this command is life. And so he sets to building an ark. That's the heart of faith, isn't it, friends? That in the commands of God we see life and we respond with the obedience that we can muster. A heart that trusts that life is to be found in the Word of God rather than the ways of our surrounding culture. Hebrews puts it like this. This is what Jason was preaching on. By faith, Noah, when warned about the things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. So that's uh, Hebrews eleven seven. Noah is a portrait then of a person of faith. And his challenge to us is this. Will we be those who live like him? By faith, or like those uh, who, who surrounded him, who lived by sight. They couldn't see a coming flood, so they ignored it and got on with life their own way. Will we live like Noah, by faith, or like the world around us, by sight? Will we view our lives through the lens of Christ and his coming judgment and salvation, or through the lens of our culture that just lives in response to what it can see? Friends, how like Noah we must look to a watching world, mustn't we? How like Noah we must look. Noah laboring to obey God by building a boat in a desert. What a fool he must have seemed. And us, people of that same faith, laboring to build godly lives, walking with that same God against uh, a tide of uh, increasingly godless and immoral culture, facing perhaps the same jibes that uh, that Noah got. Yeah, there is no storm coming. Live for the now. How ridiculous to obey God's command. How like Noah we must look as we labor to build godly lives in an increasingly godless culture. Is it not true that it is as ridiculous to remain celibate as a single person as it is to build a boat in the desert? I mean, why do that? Why should you do that? Why should you be saving sex for marriage or remaining celibate? Uh, outside of marriage. It's like building a date in the desert. What an absurd thing for God to command. Just, you know, live for the now. Everyone else is doing that. Everyone else is having sex outside of marriage. Nothing's happening. Live for the now. God's command is absurd. Why labor? 
to save a marriage that's going through a season of struggle, just do what's easiest for you. Why labor to build a godly life? Most, most others don't. Have an affair. If that makes you feel good at this season, if, that, if you feel that's going to help you achieve self-fulfillment, your purpose, that's the way of the world. Why labor to avoid the the traps and the tricks and the, and, and, and the despair of pornography. I mean, if you fancy some titillation, if you fancy a thrill, if you fancy some easy sexual release, why labor not to click on the thousands of pornography sites that are freely available on your website? Most others do. Why labor to build a godly life? No one else is. Is it not as ridiculous as laboring to build a boat in a desert? How like Noah we must look to a watching world. Why labor to maintain a work-life balance? Why, why make that difficult decision to say no to a particular promotion because you know it will take you away from the family or because you know it's not particularly good for you? Why not just live for the now? Everybody else is. Why not seek security in the big house and the holidays and the car and the, and, and the pension scheme? Why are you laboring to live a different way? How ridiculous. How like Noah we must look. Why would we do that? Why would we labor? in that way to build godly lives in a godless society. Friends, we do it only if, like Noah, we believe God's commands are the way of life. If we truly believe God's commands are the way of life. If, like Noah, we know them actually to be words of mercy and rescue. If we know them to be expressions of his fatherly care and concern. Only if we, by grace, live by faith in his words... And what he says is to come rather than by sight and what we see now. Only if we see in the sexual confusion and the lack of contentment and the stress and the anxiety and the depression that flows from building our lives on anything other than Christ, only if we see in the breakdown of our society and the ethical mess of our culture, only if we see in these things the beginnings of the rain falling and the foretaste of future judgment ahead will we labor by God's grace, to build such lives. Noah is a portrait of a life of faith. He is an encouragement and a challenge. But he's also a comfort. And that is because, as I close, Noah is more than just a portrait of a man of faith. He is a portrait of the man of faith. You see, the shock of the story, as you'll see on that handout that I've given you, the shock of the story as we come to chapter 8 and 9, is that things don't really change after the flood. God starts again with the very best man and his family he can find, but things soon start taking a sinful turn again because they took their imperfect hearts onto the ark and they came off the ark with imperfect hearts and the cycle of sin and violence soon starts again. In his mercy, God raised up Noah, a man of faith, to rescue his family and to preserve humankind, but Noah is an imperfect man and it's an imperfect salvation. It's not the promise, it's not the fulfillment of the promise made in Genesis 3. Noah is not the man to destroy evil and recreate humanity. But God does all this to show how, how he's going to do it. He shows us the salvation we need and the way he's going to work it. Because Noah points forward to the true savior of humanity, the man, the perfect man, the righteous man, Jesus Christ. The man of perfect faith, the man whose heart always inclined to his father through his work on that wood, 
Noah's obedience built the ark that saved his family through the nails and the wood of the cross. Jesus' obedience provides a place of much greater salvation for his family. A place of forgiveness. A place where the devil is defeated. A place in which we are transformed, changed from the inside out. A man who by his spirit can get to the heart in a way nothing and no one else can. By faith in this man, walking with this man, Jesus Christ, we become part of his family. A new humanity kept safe in the storms of life and through the floods of judgment and death. And he will set our feet on the dry ground of the new creation in the age to come. And what it means to be a part of his family in the storms of life and in the storms of death, we will discover from the story of Noah next week. Amen.